Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and today we'll be talking about the intersection of innovation and creative problem solving. The Osborne Parnes model of creative problem solving, otherwise known as CPS. The balance of science and creativity necessary to solve BHAGs. And the importance of asking the right questions to drive innovation. Here with us to discuss these topics and more is Greg Fraley. Greg is a founding partner and chief solver at Kiln Ideas, a boutique consultancy that applies cultural trend intelligence products and radically new ideation techniques to the search for breakthrough ideas. He's the author of Jack's Notebook, a business novel that illustrates some of the many benefits of CPS, and he's an internationally known speaker who has presented at conferences including TEDx NASA, TEDx Stornant, Fuse, and the Creative Problem Solving Institute. He's currently on a mission to speak to more U.S.-based Chamber of Commerce groups, and he blogs on innovation-themed topics regularly on his own website at www.gregfraley.com, as well as on kilnco.com. And for the last two years, he's been named one of the top 40 innovation bloggers in the world by innovationexcellence.com. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Well, thank you for having me. Of course, our pleasure. So, Greg, at the top, we mentioned CPS and Osborne Parnes. For listeners that might not be acquainted with that concept, can you give us a quick overview of what it is? It can be overcomplicated, but I think if your listeners can remember three words, Mm -hmm. they can get the essence of the framework. And the three words are explore, Mm -hmm. ideate, and action. So each of those words represents a phase in structured problem solving or or in Osborne Parnes' uh, creative problem-solving model, the mm-hmm. CPS model. Um, the explorer phase, if you will, is where it all begins, um, unless, of course, you, you have already done your exploration. Okay. And this, by the way, is all in contrast to organic problem-solving, which all of us do every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, there's three phases – uh, there's this exploration phase, an ideation phase, or an idea generation phase, and this action planning phase. And the first phase uh, of of exploration, it starts with objectives. In other words, what do you wish for? Mm-hmm. So when you figure out what you wish for, then you go into the second step within that phase, which is essentially fact-finding. And you see, explore your facts and feelings around whatever the wish is. And that all leads up to the, the, the final part and the sort of culmination of exploration, which is to frame the problem. Once you have a properly framed problem, and that's in the, in the form of, of a kind of a platform question. So in what ways might I speak on more podcasts would be one way to frame a, a challenge. Maybe my wish was uh, I wish to do more speaking via the web. Mm-hmm. Ideation or idea generation uh, is what some people also refer to as brainstorming is the second phase. And it, it's, it's, a pure, um, it's a pure effort to come up with answers to that problem frame or that problem question that you generated in exploration. And there's all sorts of tools and techniques, um, but at the end of the day, it's a long list of ideas. Where, and then at the end of that, you converge and you pick um, – one or a few ideas to move forward into the action phases, mm-hmm. uh, action phase. And so within action, there's kind of, it's kind of a two-stepper. 
And the first step is to take whatever idea you have and refine it or improve it and sort of prepare it for introduction. And then the last bit is kind of a classic project plan, creatively done, um, to take that improved idea into the world. So that's CPS in a nutshell. And at Kiln Ideas, do you provide expertise in all three areas? We have answers for all three phases, I guess you'd say. Sure. Um, I think that our our products and services focus more on the first two in exploration and ideation m- more than action because, you know, we're not usually in the position to uh, put ideas into action for the companies we work for. That's kind of their job. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we're enablers in exploration and in ideation more than the performers of it. Mm-hmm. In other words, we're the facilitators, we're the helpers, but we are trying to get people to do this sort, this sort of structured creativity on their own. Sure. So you're, you're basically giving them the tools and teaching them to go off and fish. That's correct. Okay. So you, you, uh, in, in the jump, we mentioned that at Kiln, one of the things you do uh, sounds very intriguing, but I was hoping you could define it for us. So you you apply cultural trend intelligence products to the search for breakthrough ideas. What are cultural trend intelligence products? Well, it's maybe a bit of a misnomer. I think you probably pulled that off our website where we're trying to be really concise. <laughs> but Kill Market's a, Kill Market's a product uh, that is actually a process and a service. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Idea Keg. And if you were a customer... Uh, every eight weeks, you get a box in the mail, and inside mm-hmm. that box are seven objects, items. Sometimes they're products, sometimes they're other items from somewhere out there in the world, and each one of those items represents a cultural trend. Okay. And we've designed a process that helps organizations collide these cultural trends with their, the challenges in their business. So in a way, we're throwing little seed bombs over their garden wall into into their garden to try to inspire some fresh stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's our theory that a lot of organizations become very insular and they're not as aware of what's going on out there in the culture as they should be. Uh, it's also our theory that most of the best in, in innovations, particularly breakthrough innovations, are the result of new combinations or new uh, conceptual blends of things that have never been connected or blended before. So when we throw our, our box, our idea keg box with its seven cultural trend objects in it, and a team will explore those, those objects literally with their hands – and they would basically scaffold their thinking into the, the collision of, of those trends and objects with their business challenges. And it's basically a way to get people to think differently. So, do so you, that is <laughs> what, a, what a cultural trend object is. Okay, got it. Now, that, that sounds cool. So every so often you get a package in the mail and it has seven tangible things that you can put your hands on that, that somehow gets you to think outside of the box. Yes. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah, uh, keep it simple. I mean, um, and you know, you, you may be aware, or your listeners may be aware of a concept called a forced association. It's a 
a, t a technique that's used in brainstorming. And if you take a, a, you know, a brainstorming facilitation class or course, they'll teach you this tool called forced association. Mm -hmm. and basically, you take any old object and you, and you basically collide it with your challenge. And the idea is you're supposed to surprise your mind into fresh thinking. And what Kiln has done with the 3D objects and the, the cultural trend objects is try to take that tool to a um, another level. Uh, it's we we we're sort of leveraging the work of Howard Gardner and his multiple intelligence theory, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of people find that it's very stimulating. Uh, the average person, though, uh, when they do a forced association, has a, actually kind of a difficult time with it. You know, you show them a coffee cup and you say, okay. Give me your ideas that this coffee cup suggests for our um, our marketing problem here at XYZ Corporation. And some people will be able to think of something right away, but other people will kind of look at the cup and think of the problem and look at the cup and think of the problem and not really come up with anything. So would it, be, would it be an tried, acceptable answer yeah. to say that I will be caffeinated so I can work close I can work more quickly toward the solution of the problem, or it has to be something totally unrelated to what a coffee mug might traditionally bring you? Well, in, in ideation or idea generation of any kind, mm -hmm. you almost don't care where what the stimulus is mm -hmm. as long as it gives you a valid answer okay. or something that might lead to a valid answer to answer the, the question at hand. Mm -hmm. So the, the coffee cup is just a, a stepping stone to get to, to, you know, to fresh thinking about a problem. And, and Kiln, with its tools and techniques, um, is a little bit more multi-intelligence uh, and a little bit more kinesthetic and a little more whole-brained. And what we're trying to do is improve upon the classic way a forced association is done. Okay, and you mentioned multiple intelligence theory. I don't know for sure, but my guess would be that is something that pertains to uh, different levels of emotional intelligence and being able to relate to other people. Is that accurate? Partially. Uh, the, the work is from Howard Gardner uh, mm -hmm. at, um, at Harvard. Okay. And he's been, I think he articulated his stuff back in the 90s, and he's you know, improved upon it since then. But there's various types of intelligence. So, for, for instance, some people, and it, and it has to do with learning. Mm -hmm. um, some people are uh, kinesthetic learners, as an example. Mm -hmm. They need to experience something with their hands in order to, in order to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Other people are... Um, visual. They need to. They need a picture. They need a. They need to see it. Right. Um, there are people who are auditorial, auditorially entered, <laughs> oriented. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, sound. Right. And uh, there's other people that like to read text on a page, and hear a lecture. And all of us have those capabilities at some level, but we all have sort of a preference. Or a profile. Mm -hmm. So if you leave me to my own devices, I'll start drawing pictures. That's just who I am. I'm a visual learner. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you're trying to generate ideas, it's, it's great to tap into all those modes of self-expression. Uh, there's, by the way, a great TED video, TEDx video out there uh, by a woman by the name of Sunny Brown who goes, kind of goes into this in detail. She's, she's written a book called Doodling, which is a, uh, I, I, that's not the full title, but I think that's the, the key word in the title, um, who, who also, uh, her work is also sort of in, 
inspired us at Kiln because we think that she's totally right on. Um, so anyway, uh, just just to wrap up on multiple intelligences, it's it's a way of yes, and so you were right, partially right because. Um, Howard Gardner's theory over the years has progressed into intelligences like spiritual and emotional intelligence mm-hmm. okay. or, and musical intelligence. Okay, good deal. Uh, yeah. So are there specific ways, if there are folks out there who are looking to to strengthen their skills in, in one or, or more than one of these types of learning, are there specific ways you recommend people go about kind of sharpening their creative thinking either independently or in a group setting? Well, first of all, uh, knowing a structured framework like CPS is a good thing to have in your hip pocket. Mm-hmm. Not every challenge requires a structured process, um, but the more complicated and frustrating <laughs> uh, or difficult a complex challenge is, the more likely it is that structured uh, creativity and creative frameworks like CPS can be helpful to you. So knowing a framework. That would be one. Mm-hmm. Uh, two would be to practice the, the the types of thinking that are required in and having more productive thought. Um, so one one tip there is to simply allow yourself to be more divergent. Most of us are sort of coached to come up to come up with the one right answer. Um, <clears throat> you know from grade one up through college, you know, the tests that you take and the way you're um, evaluated and even let into college or not has everything to do with your ability to have very convergent thinking. Mm-hmm. And what isn't sort of explicitly taught or even encouraged is divergent or imaginative thinking. So if somebody says to you, gee, how could I take the ice on the top of my pond outside my window and cut it up into blocks so that I could, you know, store it and use it in the summertime? You, you know, your the tendency would be to try to think of one way. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be more creatively effective, you want to think of, you know, 20 ways before you sort of sort through those and converge and pick out the best one. So that's the second tip is to allow yourself to be more divergent all the time and not to close down on the one, quote unquote, one right answer right away. Okay. Uh, third sure. thing would be to be – go ahead. Do you have a question? Yeah, no, I was, I was going to say we, uh, one, of our, one of our previous guests, Keith Hormeyer, talked about the difference between convergent and divergent thinking a little bit. So, so yeah, it's, it's something we're familiar with for sure. So yeah. And the third thing, sorry, yeah. sorry to cut you off. Uh, where was – oh, awareness of personal – Preferences and style, I think, is also very helpful. Um, I used an assessment in my work called Foresight, and some of your other, um, some of the other people you talk to might also be using it. But it's a wonderful um, 32 question survey that basically gives you a profile of your preferences in terms of thinking. So the four the four areas are problem clarification. Uh, idea generation, solution development, and implementation. So being aware of where you're strong and where you're weak is key, I think, because where you're strong, that's kind of where you'll spend most of your time. You'll try to work your preference. But if you really want to grow as a creative person, you have to do better at the things you're really poor at mm-hmm. as opposed to sharpening the saw of of the thing that's already sharp. Right. 
Um, so for instance, I'm a great problem clarifier. Uh, that's my highest score on that assessment. And I'm a very good idea generator, but I'm, it, you know, falls off the cliff. I'm not a very good idea developer and I'm a even worse implementer. So if I want to grow as a creative person, probably uh, it's not lack of ideas. That's my problem. My problem is putting my ideas into actual practice and action. So that's a, you know, if you can do better with that, you're going to um, improve your effectiveness. Another suggestion would be to simply keep a notebook and to jot a lot of ideas and questions and observations down. Um, people have observations, questions, and ideas all the time, but they often sort of float out into the ether before people capture them. Uh, there was a professor in New York um, and whose name was Cohen, and he, he did a study that basically suggests that the one thing a person can do to improve their creative effectiveness by about 50% is simply to keep a notebook. All right, so uh, I want to follow that up with a question, Greg. I like to ask about creativity because I, I like to think that I'm a creative person, and I think I'm probably not alone in that regard. Uh, there's a video on the Kiln site where you talk about the, the balance necessary uh, between science and creativity to really drive innovation and how oftentimes there's a, a, a giant gap between the two. How do you, how do you um, bring science into the equation? What are some of the things you might want to measure, and, and how can, can companies maybe uh, bridge that divide that can be rather large? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have three hours here. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it is a longer answer, but I guess the end, at the end of the day, what Kiln would like folks to do and what I would personally like and people and companies to do more of is to have a more formal innovation process and to run it more like a, um, you know, a train schedule in terms of, um, you know, how it's done. And mm -hmm. so the first level of, of integrating science would simply be to, to try to put creativity on a schedule. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, what, what, what happens a lot, unfortunately, is companies are, are just reactive to emergencies and they innovate as a response to some change in the marketplace or a competitor doing something that might eclipse them. Mm -hmm. And then that's when they, they get hot and heavy on innovation. Um, and, you know, so not having a formal process in place where innovation's always happening is, is bad because when you're trying to innovate in, in a time of an emergency, um, sometimes it can be the mother of invention and sometimes it can just frustrate you and put everybody in panic mode. And that's the wrong place to be thinking from. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that's where it starts. Um, the other part of it is, is once you have a, a process in place for innovation, is to measure it. So um, not only measure things like uh, new po product introductions per year, mm -hmm. that would be an obvious sort of measure that I think most big companies do already, but to try to start measuring things like the number of cycles of innovation that you have in a year um, where, you know, uh, there's – everybody thinks of innovation as uh, – process as something like a pipeline. And in, in fact, people will use that term. You know, in our innovation pipeline, we have, you know, this, these stage gates and 
and you know it passes through this gate and it goes further on towards the marketplace. Um, we like to think of something that would add on to that, but it's it, it's more like the flywheel that sits in front of your transmission um, and that buffers um, you know energy. And in other words, flywheels are always spinning. And if you really want your innovation process to be more effective, you should be doing it all the time. And you should have as many people as possible involved in it. Um, and the, the, the science around getting more people involved would include using um, you know, modern tools and techniques for idea capture and for idea tracking. Mm-hmm. And for idea improvement, um, there are these these products called idea management systems that, you know, if you're not if you're a big corporation and you don't have one yet, then I think you're um, you're missing the boat. And you know, if you're an innovation director, you should look into it, or else a year from now somebody will say, "Why don't we have one of those?" And you'll get fired because you don't. <laughs> um, and, uh, did, you know, and what? And, sorry, can I just ask? What would uh, do? You, are there names of a few programs that you would recommend for idea capture? Well, there's yeah, there's a lot of them out there in terms mm-hmm. of commercial products. Um, and not to be biased, um, so I'll name a few. Uh, at the higher end of the marketplace, there's, in a, in other words, expensive. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's projects like Imaginatic, Streamer is another good one. Spigot is another good one. Uh, those are all very excellent products, um, uh, and there are, are lower end products too. And I think freebie products. You could even use a combination of email and an Excel spreadsheet to do, you know, a, a slightly more scientific, you know, idea capture and idea management job. If you're, you know, a small business and you can't afford one of those big, you know, big systems. So okay, so I want to ask you, Greg. Uh, one of the things you write about online is the importance of asking the right questions to drive innovation. Can you tell us about why that is something that's really important for any group that's looking to drive innovation? Yeah. Um, the problem frame, uh, which is is the question that you answer uh, in a an idea generation effort, you know, the, that question has everything to do with the answers you're going to receive. So, for instance, if let's imagine I'm a consumer products company and I and we do snacks, we do snack foods. Mm-hmm. And if you ask yourself the question, you know, in what ways might we generate some new snack foods? That's pretty generic. But chances are you're going to get snack food ideas from that question. But if you're a potato chip maker and a, uh, and a cookie maker, chances are it's going to be new varieties of of potato chips and cookies. Mm-hmm. But if you if you phrase the question um, differently in, in a more intriguing way, um, that might be it might push your brain into a different direction in space and maybe towards something more fresh in the marketplace. So let's say you you would ask yourself the question, um, in what ways might we make nutritious eating more flexible? That question might lead to a different set of answers from your ideation team. And if you're if you're looking for truly breakthrough innovation, in other words, if you're in the snack business but you're interested in in any kind of consumer product opportunity, 
that might not even be at all related to the current business you're in, you might ask yourself even broader questions. So, you know, thinking of the, the consumer trend of customization as an example, mm -hmm. if you collide that trend with the challenges of, you know, new markets for a consumer, uh, you know, consumer products uh, snack company, you might come up with things like in what ways might we enable consumers to grow their own food or to grow their own snacks. And so they might get into the home gardening business as a result of answering that question. Okay. Um, oftentimes in corporate innovation, innovation questions, if you will, are driven by consumer insights. And, and consumer insights are driven by qualitative and quantitative market research. And there's good news and bad news about that process, that sort of, you know, follow-on technique. The good news is, is it would tend to, tend to drive your company into questions and answers that you can answer with new products. The bad news is they would tend to be incremental ideas because consumers aren't going to tell you what the whole new marketplace for you is. Mm -hmm. They're going to the, tell you, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think the classic example, and you know, Apple, of course, gets tons of, of credit for being an innovative company, which, which they are, but is you know, Steve Jobs saying that consumers don't know what they want and, you know, before it exists, basically. I'm, that's not exactly how he put it, but, uh, but you, you can't trust a consumer to know what they, what they want if it hasn't been built yet, basically. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that, and, and I would go further say that they just won't invent for you. Mm -hmm. You have to invent yourself. And it's good, to, it's good to do market research because to get inside the head of the consumer and to get inside their heart and soul is where your invention can come from. Because if you really understand how people think out there, like Steve Jobs did, he, he knew enough to understand that what people wanted in terms of a, an MP3 player wasn't just an MP3 player. They wanted a system, a whole system, that would be really easy to use and really cool. And that's, you know, basically the difference between a Sony MP3 player and um, an iPod is the system behind it, not the device itself. The devices are very similar. Yeah, definitely. All right. So uh, I want to ask you another question or two. I know that we're getting short on time here. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, but one more question, then I'll ask you a personal question or two, and then we'll, we'll wrap her up. So every company today, Greg, wants to be innovative. Innovation is one of the, you know, one of these buzzwords that we hear flying around the business lexicon nonstop. Uh, and, you know, I would tend to think that the same holds true for most individual employees. Uh, what are some of the things that can stand in the way of employees uh, actually becoming or being innovative? Well, well let me question the question okay, first. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Not to throw a wrench into the works. Not but at all. The assumption that, that everybody and or every company wants to be innovative, I think, is not true. Okay. I think everybody says that. Right. But I think that in their heart of hearts, a lot of companies would be very, very happy if they never had to innovate another thing in their, in their organizational life. And I think people are the same. 
both people and companies love the status quo. Mm -hmm. And so when we get a system to run our life or to run our company, we want it, we want to stick with it until until something makes us change. Now, the smart company and the smart person will get ahead of that and they will change proactively. You know, think about somebody who has a drinking problem. Usually it takes a person with a drinking problem to hit bottom before they'll change. Mm -hmm. um, likewise with people and company with related to either personal innovation or organizational innovation. Look ahead and try to try to see that bottom coming and try to and try to make your change and plan for your change uh, and and continuously innovate instead of waiting for the emergency to happen. So I think that kind of answers the question. Yeah. Got it. Be innovating all the time. Yeah. Make it part of your everyday life. Yeah. And I think that's difficult for organizations in uh, pardon me, in people within organizations where their job is not to innovate. So organizations need to provide tools for every employee to participate in the innovation process. And that goes back to idea management systems, in my opinion. Uh, it also is helpful to get people involved in at least brief moments in time when they can contribute their resources and their head and their thinking to the innovation process where it might only be 2% of their job um, at least you know at least for 2% of the, of their time uh, they're very focused on some sort of innovation effort okay good deal uh, and question for you that you're you've spoken at a few TEDx events uh, that's quite an accomplishment quite an honor uh, what were the topics, and uh, and can we expect to see you at another TEDx event in the future? Yeah, I've done two, and they were both a lot of fun and interesting to do. Um, you know, getting anything down to eighteen minutes is really challenging. Um, the first one I did had to do with um, giving people some tools and techniques. That was the TEDx NASA talk that I did, mm -hmm. and it was basically a tools and techniques talk around improving one's personal creativity. Okay. So it was very general and, and aimed at a wide audience as opposed to, say, corporate innovators. Mm -hmm. could be for anyone. Uh, the second talk I did uh, at TEDx Stormont in Ireland last March was um, – <clears throat> really focused on tools and techniques for applied imagination. It was kind of a how to use your imagination talk. All right, good deal. Well, Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, great, great conversation today. I really enjoyed having you on, uh, and hopefully we'll have you back on at some point in the future. It was really a pleasure, and uh, look forward to speaking to you again. All right. Well, big thanks to Greg Fraley for coming on the podcast to talk about CPS and the important role it can play in making your organization more innovative. You can find out more about Greg on his website, www.gregfraley.com. That's Greg with two G's or by following him on Twitter at at Greg Fraley. You can find Greg's company, Kiln Ideas, online at kilnco.com and on Twitter at at kilnco. Next week, We'll have longtime innovation expert Bob Eckert from New and Improved on the podcast to talk about innovation, the C-suite, and his latest white paper, Demystifying Innovation Culture Efforts, 12 Strategies for Organizational Change Practitioners and Executive Leadership. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week.